This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to God is Gray, the podcast. Although I, as a Christian, believe that God resides in absolute truth, in black and white, we as people are stuck here on planet Earth contending with the gray. In church, gray areas often cause dissension, anger, and even hate. But on this platform, I welcome open dialogue, variety of opinion, and differing belief systems. God is Gray is meant to teach, inform, and simply trade stories with kindness, love, and mutual respect. If you have a story or perspective to share, please reach me, Brenda Marie Davies, at GodIsGrayXO at gmail.com. To support the cause and be a part of our community, donate to patreon.com slash God is gray. Now, on to the episode. Hi, beautiful Hi, people. Beautiful people. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm fanning out. I don't know about any of you, but right now we are talking to W.M. Paul Young. He's the best-selling author of The Shack and this book that I have here, Eve. Um... I see you as like the godfather of progressive Christian controversy. Wow. <laughs> Is that yeah, accurate? Don't, don't look say? for a horse head in your bed. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, for anyone that's not familiar with the shack, which I almost find hard to believe because so many of us come from Christian culture. And even if you don't, there is a movie. Big players, huge movie, mainstream, um, this beautiful message all about the divine and his, his true heart for us as people. I remember the original controversy was that God was a black woman. And that ruffled so many feathers. So I kind of just wanted to start to talk about how you never intended to be a published author. I'm Canadian born um, up in Northern Alberta. And then uh, when I was 10 months old, my mom and dad and I moved across the world. Uh, my parents were pioneer missionaries in the highlands of New Guinea in a tribal stone age culture. And that's the world I grew up in. So in, in fact, I didn't, consciously realized that I was white till they sent me to boarding school when I was six. And that was a huge disappointment. And because uh, <laughs> I sort of lost my culture and family and everything else. Mm. Uh, I grew up in a very uh, Western theology in terms of modern evangelical, very holiness movement and all of that. Um, I always wrote, you know, as even as a child, I would write. It was a way to get my inside world out. And I got lost in books because we had no technology at the time. You know, we were in, in the highlands of New Guinea, you know, and first in. My mom was a medical missionary and my, my dad was a, just a pioneer. And so, you know, we were first into a very large tribe, 20 to 40,000 over 100 square miles. But uh, New Guinea has over, uh, over 800 unrelated language groups. And, um, wow. and we were just in one of them. So when I was five years old, I was the informant for 
an organization called Wycliffe that came in to translate um, the scriptures into the Donny dialect. And uh, I was the only one that could speak Donny fluently in English. And um, so there was amazing things about growing up that way. And there were terrifying things and there was great sadness about it. And, um, and you know, I, I, over the course of my life, I began to, to go from the dark writing because a lot of my early stuff was pretty dark because a lot of my great sadness was pretty dark. Um, sexual abuse happened starting before I was five in the tribal culture and then in missionary boarding school. And um, the boarding school was more peer on peer stuff and uh, older boys. And, um, and then, uh, you know, coming back to the West and not being able to figure out how to fit in, even though I'm supposed, I kind of look like I'm supposed to know. And um, moving around a lot, 13 schools before I graduated high school. We came back uh, when I was about 10 years old. And over, over time, I began to write gifts for friends and family, you know, poetry and songs and short stories and whatever. And, uh, and it was a way for me to communicate, I care about you, I see you, I love you. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I, dr- I drug in all my addictions. And there's your imagery for the shack, right? It's the house on the inside that people help you build. And a lot of us, we didn't get good help. Um, my dad was a... He didn't have a chip for being a dad. Uh, he, I didn't want anything to do with him growing up. I didn't, I didn't connect with him at all. But I didn't know his history. I didn't know that his dad had already destroyed his own, my dad's capacity for being a father. And so that was a great sadness. And then the abuse stuff was a great sadness, as well as inside a world that's multicultural, full of wonder. I felt more Donny than I ever did white. Um, and then suddenly dropped into North America, into a world that was completely foreign yeah, and trying to survive there. So, um, you know, the shack becomes the place for those of us who are, have a broken heart or a broken soul. Yeah. The shack becomes the place where you hide your addictions and you store your secrets and you never invite anybody in there because you don't want to see the look of disgust on their face that you see in the mirror. And, um, so I drug that into my relationship with Kim, into our marriage. Eventually, thank God, but I'd never want to go through that again. You know, exposure is the only path to healing. The unexposed is the unhealed. That's why secrets are so damaging and compartmentalizing and all of those kinds of things. We just, um, they're survival skills. Uh, but um, at some point, if if we don't have an exposure of light into the places that are dark in us, we have there's no movement, and and yet this is a God who is constantly at work inside of our darkness without violation. You know, we tend to take the prisons that that we have created and crafted, and others have helped us build, and then you know put our put our own finishing touches on it, and then call it home. And uh, one thing I've come to understand about the character and nature of the divine, of love, uh, of Trinity, is that um, they don't rip me through the bars of my prison, even for my own good. Mm. But they will definitely come and be with me and love me to the place where I'm willing to walk out that kind of a door. Uh, um, I 
what you're saying is is so divine. Our connection right now is so divine in my eyes. Your daughter actually connected us uh, via Instagram and you sent me these two beautiful books. So last night I talked to you about how I really wanted to focus on the concept of corporal punishment and the masculine and feminine and female submission, et cetera, because your writing does touch on all of these things. And, and the overall message I see is God's love for us and, and his gentle approach and in the way that he approaches us and, and draws our darkness into the light. And what you don't know that I'm about to tell you is that right before this, I just had a conversation and um, it's this whole community up in Oregon of, I see, brokenhearted men in, in a weakened state, in a fearful state who are using the Bible to subjugate their wives and their children in order mm-hmm. to maintain power, to, to maintain this guise of control over their lives. And so I'm saying this conversation feels so divine to me because what uh, Stell, this woman and I did this morning was pull all of that darkness into the light. I, I feel like we took everything that was in this closet and drug it into the light, but I'm so blessed and honored to have a man who has walked through all of this, who's experienced corporal punishment and abuse himself to kind of walk us through a healing process and a new, Mm -hmm. like to not leave people in disarray and also to not have full condemnation. I just rewatched the shack um, again last night Mm -hmm. and the part where he's drawn into the cave with wisdom and wisdom is saying, who's it going to be? Who are you going to send to hell? This child that's rebelling in this way or this child that's rebelling in a different way. And of course, the father does as Jesus and God did, which is to say, don't, no one, take me. Let me, um, let me offer two different perspectives about what you're saying. Okay. And, uh, and I, so, I so feel your sense here um, and, and what you bring to the conversation and, and the outrage on the one hand, right? which is the outrage of Jesus too, by the way. And so we we can talk about the gentleness that Jesus has for the broken, the woman at the well, the Syrophoenician woman, although he was pretty strong with her. Um, and, and, And yet you have this other side where there was an absolute stance against that, which was damaging the ones that he loves, including those who were perpetrating that loss, right? And so, yes, this is a God who is very gentle in the midst of dealing with the wounded. You know, uh, people ask me about the church a lot. And, and I'm going, well, ultimately, the church is the relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's this great circle of dance and mutuality and, and, and all of that. We bring the damage to that dance. We were included in it from the very beginning, um, but we're made in the image and likeness of the truth of who God is, right? So every parent or grandparent who has any health in them at all will take a fiery and furious stance against anything that hurts the ones they love, right? Yeah. And, um, and that doesn't originate with us. That originates in the very being of God. A lot of people want to think that the divine doesn't really discern between good and evil. It's like, well, everything ultimately has a, um, has a, a good intention. And to me, that's just fatalistic determinism. That's, that's abusive in, in, 
you know, and we, and we end up saying things because of what we believe when, when we hear a story of some, how someone was abused. I have a friend whose uh, best friend was a internationally known um, stunt person and was doing an on-camera stunt in Munich, Germany, where he was actually flipping over a number of moving cars. And, uh, and he's also a person who has a love for Jesus. But he, in his mind, somebody had just said to him, you know, just think about the great testimony you're going to have when you're going to be on international television doing this stunt. And he was thinking more about that, a stunt that he had done hundreds of times. And he miscalculated. And the last truck that was coming through, driven by his father, hit him. And he became a quadriplegic. Oh, my gosh. And, and well-meaning Christians, my people, well-meaning folks would say things like, you know, this, this is part of the plan of God. This is part of the purpose of God. This is, this is, you know, just think about the kind of testimony you're going to have now. And, and that kind of thinking was so devastating to this young man's mother that she just basically walked away and said, if God's like that, I'm done. Right. If, yeah. if that's what you think I'm done. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I didn't even know about it until later, but I was talking to my friend who is this young man's best friend. And, and we were in Florida, I think at some book thing. And, um, and she said, what are you working on? I said, Oh, I'm working on the four spiritual lies, you know, and uh, we grew up with a little tract that had the four spiritual laws. And, um. <laughs> um, and, I, and, and one of them is, you know, you've sinned and you're separated from God. And I'm going like, yeah. Or God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And most of us from my tradition will turn that into fatalistic determinism. And it's like, this must be part of the plan of God, this terrible thing that's happened, you know. Yeah. And and so one of the things that's so important is that we don't put, we don't make uh, transcendent love for me, Trinity, the, this beautiful personal dance of three persons in an absolute oneness. Uh, we don't make Trinity the, the author of evil of any sort, or that, that the divine would use evil to in order to accomplish good you know the ends don't justify the means for love uh you know if it's wrong it's just wrong the abuse of a child is wrong i don't just because god can climb into the broken heart and begin to do redemptive things doesn't mean that it was somehow right to begin with and 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 george mcdonald who was uh, c.s lewis's mentor basically in a prolific writer of adult fantasy stories, you know, like uh, Lilith and, and um, Fantasties, which is the book that changed Lewis's life. But he says, you know, this is not a God who will stand idly by while anything that is not of love's kind remains in you. You know, uh, you, you know my daughter, and she fought, she fought a brain tumor for over 10 years, mm. you know, a, a little piece of tissue on the backside of a pituitary gland. And and because of the presence of that little piece of tissue, she began to entertain a lie. And the lie was, you know, your damaged goods, nobody will ever really love you. 
And that lie began to expand. Well, I'm her dad. Give me, give me the power to be a fiery, flaming fury. And I would go in there and destroy that little piece of tissue. But even more so, go after the lie that whispers to my daughter that she's not enough. She's always been enough. And my fury does not originate in her disappointment of me or her not living up to my expectations. My fury actually originates in my love for her, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so we need to understand that the divine is not just some um, helpless uh, energy, personal power in the universe who is standing by wringing their hands, wondering what to do about the kind of damage in the world. No, this is, this is a God who is actively against anything that is not of love's kind. And that includes anything that is not of love's kind in you or in me, because we are loved, because we are loved. So that's on the one hand. I have friends on death row in Tennessee. And, uh, and I got to know them because of the shack. The shack went right through death row, unit two, at Riverbend. And um, Terry King was the first uh, death row inmate that I met. He'd been there by that time, 30, 32 or 33 years. It's now 35 or 36. And, um, wow. and, um, and be, I, I tell you this wild, crazy story of how I actually got there. But, but when I went to see him for the first time, we're sitting there in a small little room. And, and he says to me, he's, well, uh, I mean, they've been on, he and Ron, the other inmate who was with him, who had been on death row for 30 years, I think at that point, they, they were able to show me stuff that they were writing and things like this. And we were able to hug and all this before COVID. Right. So uh, uh, there was no social distancing issues. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, um, but every once in a while, Terry, he just, he just look over at me. I'm sitting next to him and he just reach out and touch my shoulder and start to weep. Mm. and uh, I go Terry what's going on he, he says I can't believe you're here I cannot believe you're here I'm going like Terry you have no idea how honored I am to be here mm. but he said can I he says can I tell you what in the shack absolutely changed my life I said yeah <laughs> You're like, no, I actually have to go. <laughs> yeah, really, really. No, time's up. Um, and he says, it's the cave scene with Sophia. Okay. Mm -hmm. The one that you brought up, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, and he says, here I've been, you know, 33 years. No, the day I first met him, I think it was 33 years. And he said, he said you know, here, here I've been 33 years. I've never hidden the fact of what I did. I, I've never tried to lie about it or anything. Yeah, I was high. Yeah, I was 18 years old and I killed someone. Mm. And, um, and so he says, you know, so my life has been going through the proper appeal process and all that kind of stuff, but I never hid the fact. But the problem was I didn't own it either. And, and here's the deal, he says. So when I'm reading, he said, I'm in my cell reading the chapter uh, 11, which is the cave. And, uh, and as I'm reading it, I come under such intense conviction of my own blindness that I, that I literally feel like my skin is on fire and my clothes are burning off. 
and I'm crawling on the floor of my cell trying to figure out how to get out of my own skin because I I recognize after all these years that the reason I never fully faced and owned what I had done is because I still, I still sat in the seat of judgment. At least I was better than the pedophiles on death row, right? Mm -hmm. So, so he, and he, and he just, he's like, that changed my whole life. You know, and I know Terry for the last few years and, and he looks for contacts on the outside of the prison system to see if anybody will come and visit the pedophiles on death row because some of them have never had a visitor in decades. Wow. And, um, but again, it's this issue of, well, as long as I think I'm better than you, as long as I sit in the seat of judgment, I don't have to deal with my own stuff. At least I'm better than you, which is a statement of shame. It's not a statement of wholeness at all. And so, yeah, there are, there are so many reasons to be furious in this world, you know, and, uh, and this is where the power of forgiveness plays such an essential place because forgiveness is for the sake of the victim. It's not for the sake of the perpetrator. Reconciliation, which takes a long time and a lot of certain things have to be in place, is the rebuilding of trust. And that's for the sake of the perpetrator. Yeah. But forgiveness is for the sake of the victim. Otherwise, they will carry the corpse of that memory or event around them and it will become their prison that they call home. Yeah. I mean, everything you just said is so stunning. And something that's been coming to me a lot in my prayer life recently, like you're talking about this this justice, this fury that rises up. I think a lot of us in evangelicalism were taught to be sort of afraid or always in a state of managing our emotions, seeing our emotions as some enemy. Um, because yeah. emotions can mislead you, of course. You, you could kill your husband because he's cheating on you and that could be an emotional response. So yes, we do have to navigate our emotions wisely. But then I think with that fear, we neglect so many emotions that are coming from a place of justice and intuitive power with the Holy Spirit. And whether that be for our own sense of self-conviction, like your friend said in prison, where they realized they had never accepted the conviction that they were warranted. And like you're saying about God too, like I've always been taught the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. And a lot of the people that taught me that were much more harsh and brutal and judgmental than they said the Holy Spirit was. But I did notice that distinction really clearly. I noticed that the invitation from the Holy Spirit in its conviction always was coming from a source of love. It wasn't a source of complacency or permissiveness. It was always from a place of absolute love, absolute desire for reconciliation and restoration and healing. And to me, what keeps coming to me again and again is that the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is fear. Fear. Thank you. And the outputting mm -hmm. of that is, is shame, is violence, is, is every sort of travesty we see in this world. So the more we push people away into their deeper fears, like a pedophile who hasn't been visited in 10 years, yes, they're the most vilified people in our society. And, and many would say, okay, yes, rightfully so. But even that is passed generation through generation through generation. And the only path to restoration to break a chain like that would actually be welcoming 
a person that's living in that sort of shame and fear and self-destruction, drawing them to the light again, into the love again. Right. And, and part of that is um, there is this, in fact, I'm working on a, a piece of writing about this right now. And that is, it's, it's centered on the statement wholeness, which is the same root in, in uh, Greek for holiness, right? Wholeness. Mm. We were always afraid of holiness because it was sort of antiseptic pure purity, right? So yeah. <laughs> you know, God was holy at a distance. And we always thought that reverence and awe was because we had this distant respect for this omnibeing, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas anybody that's had children or grandchildren and you have any health at all, you know that it's not distance that creates awe and reverence, it's proximity, it's closeness, right? Well, and, uh, and holiness is a relational term, fundamentally, not, nothing to do with sin and all that kind of stuff that we grew up thinking. Um, but wholeness, wholeness is when the way of your being matches the truth of your being. Wholeness is when how you live your life and the choices you make is an expression of the truth of your being. So the big question then is, what's the truth of your being? Well, in my life, everything told me that the truth of my being was that I was a piece of shit. That's what it told me. The abuse told me that. My dad communicated that through corporal punishment that was incredibly abusive. Um, The uh, abandonment continued to whisper that, the bullying at school, the abuse at school, the then being dropped into a culture where, you know, know, while my whole life lying had been a survival skill because lying is not intended at, at its basis to, to fool or deceive someone. It's, it exists in order to find a way to be safer than you are now. Yeah. To protect yourself. It's a, it's an absolute survival skill. So, um, but everything. And then on top of that, my theology that I grew up with said that, well, God thinks the same way. The truth of your being is that you have a sin nature, right? So there's something absolutely and fundamentally wrong about you. The truth of your being is that you're totally depraved, or as, as Martin Luther in the Reformation said, you are snow-covered dung, which is piece of shit theology, right? Yeah. And uh, so not only is the world communicating to me that I'm worthless, but God thinks that way of me. And, and if wholeness is when the way of your being matches the truth of your being, that's why religion feels like such a, a false cover-up. All I'm doing is hiding the fact that I'm a piece of crap, you know? And I'm doing the best that I can, but if you think in your heart of hearts that the truth of who you are is that you're a piece of garbage. You will ultimately act like one and you will let people treat you like one. And it doesn't mean that there aren't all kinds of darkness and lies embedded in, in our, in our world, in our inside world. There are. And that's why the presence of a God who is light in the middle of our own journeys and hearts becomes absolutely essential to us finding a way out of this or actually not becoming something that we weren't before but 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 um, realizing and embracing and expressing the truth of who we've been the whole time so what is the truth of being human it's being made in the image and likeness of god especially as revealed in the person of jesus So I can look at Jesus and I can tell you the truth of who I am. And let me tell you one of the implications of this. 
well, there's two of them that come to mind immediately. One having to do very much with what you're saying. And that is, we have to begin to look at other people according to the truth of who they are, not their presentation, not their devastation, not the lies they believe, not the stupidity that they've embraced as truth, right? Um, because if you, cannot, if you cannot see past that, all you're going to do is project your own fury against your own self on that. And, and here's the difference between shame and guilt. Guilt is in the, in the realm of behavior, I've done something wrong. And we got to own that. Shame is in the realm of the truth of your being. And it is, I am something wrong. Yeah, guilt is I did something wrong. Shame is I am something wrong. Yep. And there is no place for shame whatsoever in the life of a human being. Mm -hmm. So, so um, uh, the other thing that comes to mind in terms of, of the truth of your being and, and, and the way of your being is that as a person thinks in their heart, that's going to be their experience. You know, your existential experience will be an expression of what you actually believe about yourself. So in my life, by the time I'm, what, 12 years old, I'm absolutely addicted to porn. And that's part, part of it was because of the abuse. Yeah, I understand that. But I got to own this. If I'm going to deal with, with these kind of broken places, it's got to be exposed and I've got to own it. So, so here I am. I'm completely addicted. Why porn? Well, porn is the imagination of a relationship without the risk of a real one, right? Mm. It, is, it is something that tries to fill the gap between where you're trying to control the universe in your head and a heart that's completely broken and you despise and you're disgusted at. And so, you know, I, it owned me. I hated it. Well, and I hated it because I thought that's just proof and evidence that that's the truth of who I am. I am a piece of shit. See, look, right? Yeah. And uh, I'm dehumanizing people. I'm, um, and I, it's, I'm addicted. I cannot break the cycle. Well, I haven't had an issue with that kind of garbage um, for, I don't know, 20, 20 some years. Why? Why? Why have I been able to destroy the presence of that addiction in my life? What happened? Well, it wasn't because I finally got so afraid of hell that I got scared straight. You know? Right. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and it wasn't because I got good at self-discipline. Self-discipline is an act. Um, it's an act that comes from the outside in. But but when you're told that you're made in the image and likeness of God and God is self-control, that comes from the inside out. And if you think you're a piece of crap on the inside, how are you supposed to do that? So instead of self-control that emerges from the inside out, you adapt something like self-discipline that comes from the outside in. And it only works for a while, right? Yeah. You eventually get tired and, and your system gets broken down and, and you go back to your addiction, whatever the addiction is, uh, whether it's food or whether it's you know, fury or whatever your addiction is, right? And, um, and so it wasn't self-discipline and it wasn't, um, it wasn't an accountability group, although there is something about healing and the attachments that occur in inside community that are absolutely essential. A lot of people want to come to wholeness without anybody else finding out about it. I did. You know, I wanted God to heal me with nobody else finding out about it. And so that, so that my, my presentation, my facade then became my real person. 
right? Because I put my hope in the facade that I could paint it as fast as I could pick up your expectations. And, um, but here, let me tell you what destroyed my addiction. I got, I got caught in a three month affair with one of Kim's best friends. And Kim and I have now been married for over 40 years. And, and just to frame that saying, we are the best we've ever been. Um, and better than we could have been if I hadn't blown up the world. But I, like I said, thankfully I married the wrath of God, but I, I would never have wanted to go through that ever again. And I don't wish it on my worst enemy. You know, it's like, no, it was hell. And, uh, and it took 11 years for Kim and I to heal. And she is not a meek, mild, submitted, whatever. You know, she is, she is, she and her five sisters are called the force. And, and, you know, she's right out of Minot, North Dakota, where she was born, where there's no 50 shades of nothing. And, uh, and so, you know, thank God, because part of the reason I'm as whole as I am is because the intensity of her fury. But in that exposure where my facade completely came down and I hit the bottom and my choice was either kill myself or find a way to change um, through that and beginning to unravel all the lies that had owned me for so long, which meant I had to deal with the issues with my dad and had to deal with the issues with my mom. And with the sexual abuse and with the perpetrators and then my own perpetrations and then, you know, what I had done and, and, uh, and the regret and the grief that is a part of that, that's necessary. It's part of the purging and the burning away. And uh, I, I still have regrets, lots of them, but I've learned to live with regret as part of grief and not part of shame. I, shame has no place for me. I wanted to address two points to what you're saying. And one is that I've noticed in evangelicalism, there is a facade of repentance and a facade of owning up to your, quote, sin. For example, I've seen Christian men own up to their porn addiction, which that alone is questionable. Oftentimes, our our inherent desires are so repressed to such an extreme that people's output of that is is something darker and something more desperate than sexuality I, I am so sorry i got caught <laughs> exactly exactly but oh, then let, I, me, I, let me just finish one little oh, thing yeah, because sure, I, I didn't give you the the punchline to why i don't have an addiction <laughs> oh right? yeah let's do that <laughs> and that is during that process of absolute dismantling what i believe to be true about myself about the world about the nature and character of God, that during that time, I began to r- realize that I was made in the image and likeness of God and not a piece of shit. Mm. And, and that meant things. That meant that I was by nature kind. And I was by nature furious at things that hurt the ones I love and the ones whom God loves, right? And it meant that, that at the core of my nature, I'm self-controlled and pure of heart. And it's, and it's when that became the truth of who I am, not became in the sense that it wasn't before, it was just buried underneath the lies and all the damage. But when I began to be able to apprehend that and acknowledge it and trust it, my addiction fell away. It just, it just disintegrated because it was a product of the damage. Now, this is, for me, it involved therapy, it involved letting people into my world, it involved all these journey elements, mm-hmm. but, but 
Okay. Now, having said that, you're talking about how so many people, um, their, their sense of repentance is that, that their shame demands of them that they need to pay a certain amount of humiliation to offset what they've done, but it doesn't change them. Yes. Thank you. Like, that's what I was going to say. Like it, it, people would do this like public penance thing and, and my heart goes out cause I watch them do it. And I'm like, I know what you think you're doing, but if you're, you know, it's like they say, you're putting a bandaid on a gaping wound and you're not, you're not looking to heal the wound. And I appreciate their honesty, but at the same time, how do you separate shame from true conviction you know, when you look like you're outputting all of the right moves that you're supposed to be making. And also I I hesitate too, because there's so many unsafe spaces and communities for people. Like you're saying you need community. Well, I know a lot of unsafe evangelical communities. I'm a hundred percent with you. Yeah. So it's like, how do you navigate? And also last point, how do we come to acceptance that we are not inherently sinful and terrible and pieces of garbage because it blows my mind. But at the same time, that was beaten into me, um, you know, emotionally and verbally. And I don't know how, how people are supposed to stop arguing that, no, we, we are made in the image of God and therefore we're inherently good, not inherently evil. Right. So, I mean, what are the options here? You know, um, you can, how, how's it working for you thinking that you're a piece of crap? You know, yeah. and, and uh, you know, how's, how is it impacting your relationships? Where are, where is the places of your deepest longing? Is your deepest longing to be uh, a liar or is it to be a truth teller? Is it to be a kind person or is it to be an evil reprobate tyrant? You know, and I'm telling you, the deepest longings of your heart are to be integrated, are to be whole, are to be kind, are to be generous, are to be forgiving. Those things are whispers that tell you about the truth of who you are. But your what heart are is things... deceitful. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> that, you know, it's the, uh, the wicked, the word wicked, it comes from um, Old English. And um, it's, you know, wickerware, you know, that the mm-hmm. stuff in your outdoor furniture that's just woven like this. Yeah. Wicker is the root for wicked. And it just means all twisted up. Um, but what we've done is said, no, your heart is fundamentally evil. That's what we did. So, you know, I mean, you and I grew up in a world where, and, and pardon the racial epithet that's involved with this, but everything that was evil was always black and everything that was good was always white. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's part of our conditioning. But we were taught that, you know, there were two, two dogs at war within us, a, a, a white dog and a black dog. And it's like the big question for your spiritual discipline was who you're going to feed today. Yeah. And, and, and I'm like, so who's the feeder? Is the feeder part of the white dog or part of the black dog? And, and, and the way we grew up, it was always part of the black dog. So there's no hope for change, right? No, no hope. And, and so what... What touches you? What breaks through? Sunset, nature, a lyric to a song, a child's kiss. I mean, you start, you know, someone who sees you, you Mm. know, um, Mm. a kindness, a generosity of heart. These are the things that are actually whispering to us the truth of who we are, right? Mm. And then for me, 
this is what one of the many reasons why the person of Jesus becomes absolutely central to this, because from what I understand is that Jesus is not just a human being doing the best he can. This is Trinity who has absolutely taken on everything uh, that it means to be human and lives in this world in a way that someone who is truly human and truly alive it does, can. And so, so when I began to look at, so what's the nature and the character of God? Because if I'm made in the image and likeness of God as revealed in Jesus, then that gives me a clue. And I see someone who loves to be around children, who children are attracted to. I see someone who reaches out to the marginalized, in fact, has a better time with the marginalized and the institutionally religious or political. Right? Yeah. And, I, and I begin to watch something extraordinary in the midst of all the brokenness. And I get these hints about who I am. And, and we're so incredibly crafted as and magnificent as human beings that, that there is no quick fix here. You know, and like I, I tell people, we would love extreme soul makeover, right? Send me to Disney World and fix me by the time we get back. I want the queer eye, sad side. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fixing exactly. my soul. Uh-huh. And, it, and it's like, no, it does not work like that. And, and it's incremental work, but it requires making a choice to be a truth teller in any given moment, you know? And it's, and we go in and out of that journey, but you know, I can tell you, I just, a couple of days ago, I just turned 65. Happy and, birthday. No, thank you very much. <laughs> and, um, and I have a lot of years under my belt. And, and I can tell you that the journey is, uh, and the hard work, the hard, hard work of it is absolutely incredible. And it's worth it. You're worth the work. But, you know. It may be sitting with a therapist because you can't trust anybody else. It, 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 you know, yeah. So you, you pay someone to be trustworthy or whatever. Because right. frankly, you're right. This is the beauty of, of um, the, knowing the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness is where you let go the throat of someone or an event, usually someone who doesn't care anyway, or maybe even dead, and, um, so that they don't continue to own you. you know, it's for the sake of the victim. Reconciliation means that the person who's the perpetrator has owned what they've done. I mean, like truly owned it, has told the truth about it, has asked for forgiveness, not just apologized, because apology is announcement that I got caught. Asking for forgiveness is an exchange of power, right? But the fourth thing of those four things is change over time. So you can forgive someone and never trust them again. Yeah. And a lot of us as religious people, we didn't know. We thought that if you forgave someone, they had to be your friend or you had to trust your kids with them or something, you know, Mm-mm. and that's so not true. You know, that kind of thinking, you destroy the boundaries that are necessary. Yeah. I wanted to share that I, like I said, was a victim of corporal punishment um, at the hands of my dad, but I have such the, the blessing, not only his blessing to share that reality with the God is great community with you, but also the blessing of our reconciliation of my absolute forgiveness and, and his true repentance and turnaround from that behavior. And 
one of the main crossroads that we came to was that I got in the most abusive relationship of my life. And it was emotionally abusive for a really long time. And then finally it became physical. And, you know, it's okay. But I mean, it's, you're right. It's not okay. And it was very traumatic, but everything you're saying, it's like, you can see what leads you there. For me, my worth was in my virginity. So when I lost my virginity, quote unquote, and, and then lost my marriage because of infidelity on his part, then all of a sudden I had no sense of, of who I was as a Christian anymore. Cause I was like, Correct. if I'm going to have sex outside of marriage, then I am by that definition worthless. And, and I guess not even a Christian anymore. And that was okay. I played with that fire for years, but it all culminated in this relationship that really showed me in this very physical, tangible way, how worthless I actually allowed myself to feel. That's not victim blaming. I just want to point out. No, I I hear that. Yeah. But I'm saying like, that's where I just want any father listening that, that believes in corporal punishment to understand the root of that message of fearing your father and then of not being sure that you're worth it or that you're valuable or that you're worthy of being protected has long lasting results that can really be traumatic into adulthood. And our reconciliation was my beautiful friend, Emily talked to me and she was like, you should ask your dad to tell you that you don't deserve to be hit by a man. And I was like, And I called my dad and we Skyped and it was the most difficult conversation of my entire life. But he said, I'm going to cry, but he looked me in the eye and he said, you do, you do not deserve to have any man, any person lay their hand on you. You do not like deserve to live in fear. You do not deserve to feel that you are worthless. And just watching my dad, it's like, not everyone gets that. Not everyone gets that reconciliation. I'm so blessed that I had it, Yeah. but that's the power of forgiveness and reconciliation. And now I'm in the most edifying, beautiful relationship that I could have not even imagined for myself. And I don't know that I could have, I know actually for sure that I could have not gotten here if I did not regain my sense of inherent good and inherent self-worth. Yep. Yep. I absolutely agree with you. Absolutely. There's, um, you know, there, there's this verse that says, train up a child in the way they should go. And when they're old, they won't depart from it. Yeah, and they translate that into, so hit them all you want, and then they'll they'll be trained. Yeah, or spare the rod and spoil the child. There's Mm -hmm. another hitter hitter verse, right? Yeah. And neither of them are saying that in the Hebrew. Um, You know, for us, training up a child in the way they should go. And so, you know, it was whatever the latest discipline fad was, you know, whether it was a dare to discipline or something else. Right. And and there was this, the way they should go. It was all behavior centered. Yeah. And, um, but it didn't work. I mean, there were four kids in our family. We went completely different ways. <laughs> yeah. We have six kids of our own. Wow. And, uh, but the Hebrew itself says, train up, uh, train up the child in their way. And when they're old, they won't depart from it. Wow. It is completely different. It is each child has their way. How did this even happen? Because we brought our damage and we place it into our interpretations and translations. We do it all the time. That is horrifying. It is horrifying. So what it's saying is that every, and we have six kids and they are completely different. You can't discipline two of them the same. You can't reward two of them the same. They, so, but as a parent, you get the invitation. And I think a special 
um, enlightenment from the Holy Spirit to see the uniqueness of your own children, each one of them. So, so of course, they won't depart from it when they're old, when you've trained them up in their way. It's their way, right? So part of this is an absolute submission to the uniqueness of who that child is so that you can then discern as they begin to develop and emerge what their way is. So this brings me to something that I would love to have your voice on because even as a woman, I know my voice might not necessarily be valuable to a male listening who's in this like authoritative presence in his own household. And I want to address your saying, raise them up in their way. And now we're imposing gender roles. So we're punishing and, and disciplining boys for not being as masculine as they should be. And we're disciplining girls for being too loud and boisterous and being leaders when they're supposed to be followers. What is your take on, on gender roles and how they've been imposed? Oh my gosh. So, so much of it is cultural. And, and um, what we did is that we created a polarity of what it meant to be masculine, what it meant to be feminine. And that polarity is so bipolar that a huge number of people their way didn't match the polarity that we defined as masculine and feminine. And so you've got all this gender confusion or or a sense of gender lostness, like who am I? Because I don't fit the polarity, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a big, that's a big part of our problem right there. The, you know, I did this thing way back when I was uh, in my early twenties, I was in, in the only time I ever worked for a church was for about two and a half years. And it was a, it was a very helpful uh, community in, in some respects. And um, I have a, a little bit of this with institutional religion, generally speaking. And, um, uh, but I always refer to modern evangelicals as my people because that's where I came from. And, and I don't want to suddenly take a position of being somehow um, superior and creating a new division, right? Um, I, w- I want, as Roar would say, to... Um, to include and transcend. Yes. And, uh, and so um, uh, I did this thing where I had 50 different personality traits on a list and, and I was working with the, my own age group, which were the 20 to 30 year olds. And we had anywhere from 300 to 700. So it was kind of the big thing in Portland at the time. And, um, and so I, I, ha- I put this whole list there and I asked everybody, um, okay, so next to it, I want you to say, is this, is this a masculine trait or a feminine trait or both, right? And I hid in that list all the fruit of the spirit. Mm. And, and almost um, everybody put down, uh, basically only one fruit of the spirit came through as masculine, which was um, um, long-suffering. Right? Oh gosh! <laughs> but but all the other ones came through as feminine, gentleness, kindness, right? Yeah. And so so and it was like oh so here we've taken the very character and nature of God, and we've compartmentalized it in such a way that that we've attributed this to the masculine, this to the feminine. The conversation has become so heated. I have a good friend who's a therapist. Her name is Katie Skurja, and Katie um, talks a lot to little children you know, anywhere from five years old to teenagers. And, and, um, um, and she did a, she did a kind of a research project where 
and she didn't know these kids, or didn't know hardly any of them. But the first time she met them, she began talking to them. That was filmed. That's really beautiful. And instead of using masculine feminine, she talked about the lion part of who you are and the lamb part of who you are, because Jesus is the lion and the lamb, right? Mm -hmm. So in this really beautiful presentation of the character and nature of God, Jesus, you have a lion and a lamb. And she would begin to then go like, so what do you think about when you think about a lion? What do you think about when you think about a lamb? And then, so... So if, if you are a lion and a lamb, but you take the lamb and you hide it, what, what kind of a person do you tend to be if you're just the lion? And, that's, and they would identify bullies. They would identify, you know, all kinds of things. Well, what happens if you take the lion part of you and you're just the lamb? And now you're the victim. Now you're the, you know, all of these kinds of things. And so, and they did it themselves. These children immediately picked it up. And what she was doing is largely what we've done with masculine feminine, although she takes it out of that realm, puts it into a way we can talk about it. Every person has a lion and every person has a lamb, right? And so you could look at your own journey and go like, oh my gosh, I so buried the lion that I, I was just, I was the sacrifice. I was walked on. I was, you know, abused. I was this. And what's the tendency is to like, I am never going to be a lamb again. And now we become violent and abusive in our language. You can see it all over the internet, right? Is people who have, have been in a position of being a lamb for one thing or another. And now their only recourse is to use lion language. Mm. Right? And so part of this is that we've got to get away from this bipolarity, bipolar uh, comprehension and talk more about what it means to be human. But religious systems, m almost all religious systems were developed by men, many with a good intention originally, but it's so embedded by their own need for power and control that these things have become just expressions of power and control. Not that there isn't beautiful things that religious systems can do, but here's the hope. I have a hope in in trinity who is not religious in any way religion is what human beings do mm -hmm. it's never been a part of of who god is but here's the beautiful thing god who is love climbs into our darkness including our religious darkness right to be with us and being with us, God begins to dismantle everything that is not of love's kind. This is why I think you will find the presence of God in every religion on the planet. Not to affirm the religion, but to affirm humanity that is stuck in it and begin to dismantle it in such a way that whatever is of love's kind remains and whatever is not gets burned away so that we can become fully free and fully fully alive. That's beautiful. Let's talk about Eve. <laughs> <laughs> Which we're working on a script for, by the way. For oh, congratulations. Motion picture. Oh my yeah. goodness. Congratulations. You Thank deserve you. it. Um, so one thing I noticed very recently in my own writing, because I just wrote my own first novel as well. Congratulations. Thank you. And I'm That's the same as... Deal. Yeah, thank you. I'm the same as you. I always saw writing as a catharsis. It was almost like it boiled up inside of me. And if I didn't let it out with words, then it, I would just 
lose my mind. I don't even know how to, I've always said that if I was on a beach, I would just write on the sand and let it wash away. I need that output. But um, anyway, I noticed in my own writing and I did write that the male characters of the Bible are flawed. David, Solomon, flawed men. The female characters in the Bible are evil. Eve, Jezebel, etc. The female characters are left no room for redemption. And to share a funny story with you, my partner is Mexican. His grandmother is in her 80s. She's from Guadalajara. And I was studying your book last night um, in her presence. And I showed her, oh, it was a, a, a TV show was on and you could see a guy's genitals. Mm. And she said, he should be ashamed of himself. He should be ashamed. And I showed her the book and she was only speaking Spanish to me. So my partner had to translate, but she looked at the title. She looked at the apple and she said, it's her fault. We're all suffering. What a bad girl. Right. Which has been kind of a big position theologically through the centuries because, you know, yeah, but, but scripture is not like that. And just, and you know, this is true. In scripture, not all men are evil. And in terms of uh, manipulative, Jesus is in scripture, right? Oh yeah, so, I, love, I love men. I love men and, yeah, and the broken yeah. men. I, my, yeah. heart, my heart is there with you. I want yeah. redemption for yeah. these people. And there are many very powerful women. And I think Eve is one of them. And so, you know, I, I have a, I've spent, well, let's start this way. When I was a teenager, my first major clash with my religious tradition and upbringing was over the issue of women and how women were silenced, you know? And um, so that has been a long-term um, part of my process. And, and Eve was in part, a, a part, of, part of where it landed 40 years later, you know? And, um, um, but I've done a lot of work. I, I worked on every problem passage and women passage and all that stuff in scripture for a lot of years. And it constantly drew me back to Genesis and um, because it's the story of the beginnings. And so, you know, here's the beginning of the turning away from God. And the more that I looked at it, the more that I realized that scripture itself never places any blame at the foot of Eve. In fact, women are always, um, extolled or presented as the ones who would call humanity back, uh, one ones who would call men particularly from the e from the abyss or the edge of non-being back to their humanity. Uh, they women and children, mm. and uh, and so you know, um, I was I was able then to go and eight times in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it declares that. All the brokenness of humanity came through one man. And, um, and for me, when I started looking at that, it, it actually happens before the whole story part with the fruit. And, um, and before she's even withdrawn um, out, out of his being uh, to be a face-to-face -face relationship that would call him back to his humanity. And that was in the, in the line that's in the Hebrew is, it is not good the first not good. There's this whole series of very goods and goods yeah. and, and including the creation of humanity is very good. You know, God has obviously a high view of humanity, way higher than we do. Mm -hmm. And because uh, we're all constantly looking at our behaviors and thinking that that's, that's evidence of the truth of who we are. And um, 
So very good, very good, and then not good. And anything that is not good does not originate in the divine. And it's like, so what's not good? And that Adam be in a separation, that, mm. he, that he has turned, right? He, and that's called the mystery of, in, of iniquity or brokenness. And, and it's like, why? Why would anybody turn from love? Why would you turn from light? And, and it's like, sometimes it's just embedded inside the ability to say yes to love. There is the power and the potential to say no. You know, I have a, I have a friend, actually, he's, he is not doing really well right now. He's a brilliant theologian and, and uh, his name's Ravi. And, and, and Ravi said one time, you know, that at the beginning, there were four possibilities for God. One was not to create at all right? Just to not create. The second one was to create a machine where everything worked by natural law. That's the second creation. The third creation was to create a machine which included a really um, uh, a masterpiece of, uh, of like mechanical. Like happy ever afters. <laughs> well, uh, just it would be to create human beings who thought they were they had the ability to choose, but actually didn't, right? Yeah. So it would be, they would be under the illusion that they could actually choose, but they actually couldn't. It's part of the machine, but it's a very intricate and, and um, elegant part of the machine, right? That's three. The fourth one is a creation in which these incredible beings were brought to be, human beings. And they were actually given the capacity to say no to love and not just natural law that they would have, even if their, even if their will was coerced by experience and lies and all that, they still would have an ability to turn their face back. Right? So of those four possibilities, and I've never been able to figure out a fifth one, but of those four possibilities, only one of them is love and relationship possible. And it's this one, the one we are in. And, and now we don't place the blame uh, at the feet of God for the damage in the world. We own it ourselves. We are the perpetrators. We're not just victims in some cosmic thing. We're the perpetrators. You know, we did this. And so now we can then participate in changing this. And, and this is, uh, and, but yet, what if, what's the option? Well, God could come in and make your decisions for you. Well, then you're back to creation number three where love is not possible. And it's like, oh, so the ability to say no is not evil, but all sorts of evil is embedded in the consequences of saying no to love and no to light, no to forgiveness, no to kindness, no to recognizing the, the nature of human beings as fully included in the love and the affection of of the divine so in the shack in this allegory of god god refers to sin as its own punishment and to me i've seen this reliance on like kind of this desperate hold that we have on rules and black and white and structure and trying our best to stay within that and even shoving God into that and saying, why do good things happen to bad people? Why do bad things happen to good people? And, and placing that blame on divinity. 
this is not to say that I'm victim blaming because so many terrible, terrible things can happen to very, very innocent people. Uh, but at this, yes. Yeah. But at the same time, I've thought, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this, that what is, what is this life? What is this world? If not an exploration of the depths of humanity and therefore the depths of love and compassion. And, and if we are not exercising forgiveness, compassion, absolute love, you know, there is no other way to truly reflect God that is exercised in it, in us. But unfortunately there is that polarity, just like the masculine feminine polarity, there's a polarity of light and darkness and we reside in this gray within it, which is why I've named my channel that way. And to me, when I read the story of Adam and Eve recently in a more free state of mind where I wasn't prepared to put the blame on her and just read it objectively, I was looking and I was like, so God said this would be the tree of wisdom. In, in her choice to partake in that fruit, was she not simply in, like welcoming the invitation, accepting the invitation to wisdom to actually learn these lessons? Um, in a way, but it, and it was through deception. And that both times that Eve is mentioned in the New Testament, it says she was completely and utterly deceived. Adam wasn't, right? Okay. So, so there, is a, there is a whole different agenda going on. And, um, and the sense is that, that Adam, who has authority, has even authority over the serpent, who then voices Adam's own disdain against the character of God, right? But he doesn't want to be the one that actually um, creates creates the obvious chasm or exposes it. He wants her to take the fall for it. And, um, and he's already turned. I mean, that's the point. He, she wasn't even there. And so everything she says is a reflection of what she has been told to be the truth. And that's why she does transgress the law. But even, even in her telling of it, he has already accentuated what he was told by God, right? Can't even mm. touch the leaves, things like that. And, um, and so her response is truth-telling. So she sees this as the tree of, and in terms of story, in terms of the Hebrew um, perception, this is the determination of what is right and wrong independently of relationship to love, right? It's, it's through the grasping. And it's not that God never intended them to comprehend the distinction between good and evil, but it wasn't to be, um, done in their own timing, right? It's just like uh, raising children. There is a time for them to learn certain things, right? And, but the intention is that you will teach them at some point, but they just do not have a capacity for it. And for them to, to go across those, you know, to run out in the road or whatever is, is simply not safe. It is not you don't have a capacity for it. So there's all of that in there. One thing is that God is light and in God, there is no darkness at all. Love is light. You know, we are the ones that brought the shadow world into the, into being. And it's not like we're caught between, uh, uh, we're victims in a cosmos where there is uh, the, the good. We're not in a Harry Potter war here, right? 
How that, fun that would be. <laughs> uh, yeah, but then it would be back up to us. And now all of a sudden I compare, you know, my, my weapons against your weapons. And, yeah. and we're back to the same old, same old, you know, power centered craziness that we're a part of. So what you have is a turning away from love and light and goodness. And, and, the, and the redemption is the turning back to it. But the beautiful thing is that we don't do this alone. We're not in a test tube here. This is a God who is fully with us and in us to, to begin to dismantle the presence and the effect of darkness. But it's not two co-equal forces in the midst of which we have to make a decision um, to, uh, you know, to vote for one. It is like, no, there is light and we brought the darkness to the table. But to God, that darkness is, is light. I mean, we, God is not blinded by our darkness. We just happen to like darkness more than we like light because light exposes us and we don't want to be exposed because then the shame comes up, the fear comes up, all of those things. And we would, we would rather run and hide inside of addiction than actually, you know, face it. But again, the work of the Holy Spirit, she's a redeeming genius and, and, and she climbs into the midst of our crap with us in order to begin to dismantle anything that is not of love's kind. Yeah, I think the two like dissenting comments I could see coming from the statements you just made are, how does this still not imply that God is cruel? Like, was there a point where we actually agreed to be subject to, to our humanity in this way? And is he still not the creator that invited yeah. us into this darkness? So a few weeks ago, I had a conversation um, on Thursday afternoons. I do a, a little class for seven of our 12 grandchildren. And then their, <laughs> their ages are eight to 12. Mm-hmm. And a few weeks ago I said, so do you think God makes viruses? You know, because inside the midst of this COVID pandemic thing, children are often left to assume whatever they assume without being actually talked with. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, so I'm, I wanted to just bring it to the surface and see, see where they were at about this. And, and I said, do you think God makes viruses? And their immediate response is no, because everything they hear is how terrible viruses are, right? And how wrong they are and how much damage they're hurting and they're killing people. And, and um, I said, so if, if God is not the origin of viruses, who, where do you think they came from? You know, and some of them have already been inside the, the my people framework enough that the immediate go-to is Satan. You know, it's, 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 this is the work of the devil, you know, viruses. Yeah. And I'm going like, well, you know, um, whatever you think about Satan, I, I don't think that that's, that's a creative force, you know? So, and then it's like, well, then it's Adam and Eve's fault, right? So I, I watched them topple down the same kind of uh, rabbit hole that a lot of us do. And I said, you know, just from a scientific point of view, do you know that human beings could not survive on this planet if it weren't for viruses? Mm. And they went, what? I said, yeah. I said, you know what? Part of the job of viruses are to take apart um, uh, bacteria and other microorganisms. And, and so if, if they didn't do their job um, as part of how creation is created, then we would be one gigantic slime ball of bacteria. And then as soon as all the natural resources were gone, the whole thing would just die, including all the bacteria. And I said, and without bacteria, 
um, which viruses have taken apart, these little fragments float into the sky and most of our water system cycle come from moisture um, uh, condensing around pieces of bacteria. We think mm. it's mostly dust, but it isn't. It's pieces of bacteria that, that viruses have taken apart. And we have found that these viruses are really good as delivery systems for all kinds of genetic corrections and things like that. We can actually piggyback a, a, a virus whose job is to invade a host with some really good stuff and they can transmit it. Even HIV is being used as a delivery system for genetic material. Wow. And, and they're like, what? Then why are they doing so much damage? I said, because we as human beings are such magnificent beings who were given loving steerage of the cosmos and we don't know how to live with it in love. And so, so, true. so this is a moral issue on behalf of humanity. You know, all creation groans is what the scripture says, waiting for the revelation of the children of God, for them to show up mm. and that we would begin to relate to the world, the cosmos in ways of love rather than greed and power and war and poverty and all these things. So we have wet markets where you sell stressed out animals inside of stressed out communities of human beings and viruses are, are trying to figure out how to survive in the middle of, of all of this. And they begin to jump hosts because we put them into that kind of conflicted situation. Yeah. And it's like, and then we turn around and go like, well, God, God let this you, happen. Cruel, right? Aren't you cruel? And I was talking to a friend of mine and he has two daughters who were fighting at the time. And, <laughs> And, and he, and he, we were having this conversation about, you know, the goodness of God and, and theodicy and evil existing. Right. And, uh, and he, and he's in the midst of this conversation, his daughters are fighting and he goes, can't they just love each other? Can't they just see the value of each other? Can't they, can't they recognize how incredible the other is? I said, so do you think it would have been better since they're having a problem with that? Do you think it would be better if they'd have never been born? And he looks at me and he goes like, <laughs> what are you talking about? I said, exactly. <laughs> do you think because we have a capacity to do all this damage that it would have been never, it would have been better if God never had created. And that's the, that's really a fundamental question. It's like, yeah, I was going to say some people in, in enough darkness might argue. Yes. You know, I, I know. And I get that. I, I, I walk the edge of that abyss, you know? Right. And mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I can understand how it feels that way. But, but then you look at someone, you look at a child, you look at a baby who's been born and that kind of thinking just goes right out, right out. This is why McKenzie in the, in the cave, said, you, you cannot put me into a position where I've got to choose between the incredible value, regardless of whether they're rebelling or not. So implicit in that scene, I was also trying to address the issue of theodicy and go like, no, the fact of existence is actually profound and more, more significant than the amount of damage that we can do to each other. Although we need to own it and we need to deal with it. We need to work it out. And how are we going to do that? By incarceration, by putting people in isolation, by execution, uh, by, by what? By putting...
putting our hope in political systems by, you know, this is why the Bible says that absolute love drives out fear, drives out darkness. You cannot. Yeah. What causes repentance? What moves someone to repentance? Love, love, love. Kindness, kindness. Mm -hmm. It's the kindness of God that leads to, and repentance doesn't mean to repeatedly paying for something. It means to change your mind, Mm -hmm. you know, change your mind. And, um, and so there's just, and there's so much beauty that's happening on this planet. And, you know, we have, we have a little bit of crisis fatigue because we have so much information about so much damage and we have compassion fatigue because we see all that's hurt and we, we think that we have to do something to respond to it rather than talk to me about who's in front of you and who's actually in your life right now that you can tell the truth to, that you can forgive, that you can be honest with, authentic. And, you know, somebody real, not somebody in your imagination or in the, in the media zeitgeist. Even though we are prone to turn from light does not mean we are inherently evil. It just Correct. means light is sometimes shiny and light plays into our fears. Like you said, why do you lie? Because you're afraid. Why do you kill your wife after uh, infidelity? Because you were afraid, because you were in shit. Like, it all leads back to this lack of love. And the, all we can do in this universe is project that love over and over again. And to circle back to the beginning of this, looking at my son, imagining instilling an ounce of fear in him. But when a child is born, they to me are on the, the lightest polarity of the scale humanly possible. Their humanity is their invitation into pain and pleasure. But outside of that, our, our job as parents is to keep them away from shame and fear. And the moment you hit that child, the moment you abuse them out of anger or hate or as an output of your own fear and shame is, is you inviting them to turn to the darkness because you've introduced them yep. to evil. But let me say this too, is that forgiveness creates a space for healing. This is not about being perfect in terms of, of your ability to be a parent or a human being. You know, I don't know anybody um, in my world that has been perfect. And um, I certainly have not. But, but grace and forgiveness create a space in which the healing of that which has been hurt or the turning again back toward the light of that which has been turned toward the dark, right? And, and for me, those things are way more powerful than the darkness. Uh, mm. the, the, the elements of our choices that are light are way more powerful than the dark. Uh, otherwise, there'd just be no hope for any of us, especially those of us who were damaged to begin with. Well, think of how a light bulb works. All you have to do is flick it and all that darkness is gone. Yeah. Well, darkness has no existential reality. You know, anything that is fundamentally real has its own existence. So light has speed, it has wave, it has particle. Darkness doesn't have any of that. Um, You can have light without darkness, but you can't have darkness without light. You can have freedom without bondage, but you can't have bondage without freedom. You can have life without death but you can't have death without life, right? So any of these things that have no existential reality are not grounded in the nature and character of God. And so you can have love without fear. You can have 
um, uh, good repentance without, without shame. Right, right. Because mm-hmm. those things are true and, um, and real and right in and of themselves. And, and that should tell us that the real is, has substance and the unreal doesn't. We have to deal with it and we have to own our participation in it. That's part of eradicating it. But uh, that's where the power of forgiveness and reconciliation stands front and center. And you see it so clearly. For God was in Jesus and reconciled the cosmos to himself, not counting their sins against them. You know, that was the verse that started the Reformation. So. I am so incredibly blessed by this conversation. Thank you so much. Two-way street, as, <laughs> as all good conversations are. Indeed. Do you have any closing thoughts before I tell you everyone where to find you? And well, I'll just say that right off the bat. Your, your books are beautiful. You have The Shack, you have Eve, which is about to be a major motion picture. You have Lies We Believe About God. Yeah, I'm working on some other projects. If, if you go to WM Paul Young, it'll link you to all that other stuff. WM is for William, by the way. I'm one of four generations of Williams, none of who go by William. <laughs> and uh, it was a joke. I put it on the first manuscript because I only made 15 copies at Office Depot. And they did everything I ever wanted that book to do. So um, did you, you wrote that for your daughter, right? I wrote it for our six kids for Christmas. Okay, yeah, yeah, It was yeah. my Christmas present that year. And uh and it literally, the 15 copies I made at Office Depot and their photocopier did everything I ever wanted that book to do. And then it was just this wild, crazy story of how, how it all unfolded. And I always say it's God's great sense of humor, you know. Or I also say it's proof that God can speak through Balaam's ass. And, uh, and for those who grew up with the Bible, you know that's an Old Testament story. Let me... Um, let me read you a poem by my friend David Tenson. And on, on my website, if you go to, there's a tab called Resources. And in that resource tab, there's all kinds of really great stuff, um, including links to some of my friends who are also trying to find ways to be helpful in these conversations. But David is, um, he's a therapist. He's a singer-songwriter, father of a couple of kids, married to Natalie. They live in Australia. He's Australian. And he's a poet. Um, my favorite living poet at the time. And one day I, I sent him a note. I said, hey, David, I've, I've got this great idea for a poem that I think you should write. And, uh, and, and I said, I only know what the title is. And, uh, and he said, what's that? And I said, the title is, Who Took Your Voice? Mm. Right? And within 24 hours, I had three poems called Who Took Your Voice? And, and I'll read you one of them. Maybe your no was not enough and dominance pushed it aside like it was never there and you learned your words didn't matter. Maybe your silence was required and coercion whispered its lie that secrets were safer and you learned that truth equaled pain. Maybe your story was cut short and shame covered your mouth to filter in the darkness and you learned to only be positive. Maybe, now that you are safer, the older, stronger you can stand beside the little one inside and begin to ask, who took your voice? Maybe you were not created to have your boundaries crossed and your no dishonored. Maybe 
You were not created to hold all those secrets and all that pain. And just maybe, you were not created to tell a partial story to be entirely accepted. Who took your voice? <laughs> oh, I've had such an emotional morning. I'm so heartbroken by everything I've learned about this community. And um, I'm just so blessed by that. And I pray that, you know, if my voice isn't enough, I'm just so grateful that I have your voice in my community in this space to be offered mm-hmm. for anyone you know my, that needs it. You know what my theme is this year? What? I got a phrase. You normally only get a word, but I, this year the Holy Spirit just whispered a phrase and that's trust the ripples. <laughs> yeah. Trust the ripples, right? Yep. Don't do what you do for outcomes purposes. Just trust the ripples. Do what you do because it's, it's your voice today. And, and so be true to your voice today. You know, the, you know, you know that you've always been enough. Amen. Okay. That's for everyone, not just yeah. me. Yeah, but it is for you. Thank you. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, we love you all so much. Get these books. Open your minds. Open your yourselves up to love and compassion towards yourselves. And that's it. We love you all. God bless. Much love. Blessings.